This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Golf Forever, Guide for Beginning Golfers. And the author is Michael Dioria. And Michael joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Michael. Good afternoon, Steve. And I guess I just want to yell four, right? <laughs> That's a good thing to do when you're on the golf course and you don't know where the ball's going to travel. Well, we're not sure where we're going to go in this interview, but we're going to really get into the basics because this is a guide for beginning golfers. Let me read what you have written about your book, and then we'll talk about the details. You say, frustrated with your game, tired of being confused about how to learn to play golf? Golf Forever provides valuable information to the newcomer to the sport to guide you through every step of the way. Right from purchasing your first set of golf clubs, scheduling your first time to play golf, this guide has all the information the beginning golfer needs to start to play. And, of course, one of the very key parts of the golf game is golf etiquette. And we'll talk more about that. What was the... uh, well, I guess the motivation is real uh, simple with you, Michael. You've been playing it for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I've been playing for over 30 years, Steve, and uh, I feel it's the best uh, game on the planet. It's a great game. It's challenging. Every time you play golf, it's a new adventure. And if you go to different courses, the different design elements uh, offer new challenges to overcome. It just has a lot of benefits to it. So what was the genesis of writing the book? Well, as you could tell, I think you could see I'm passionate about golf. Um, I started the book about 12 years ago, and it kind of fell by the wayside. And then about four years ago, I started blogging about golf. And I had put a lot of information into the blog, and uh, I knew I had started writing the book. And I said I combined the information and I wanted to offer, I remember when I first started to play, there were a lot of books on teaching the actual actual mechanics of golf, but not many telling you what to expect or how to go, go about starting to play golf uh, the right way. You know, there's a lot of people that go out on the golf course, they'll take 10 swings, they'll be digging up the course, and right. they don't know enough. When I learned, I was lucky enough uh, to have someone that, you know, taught me, pick up the ball, you drop it with the rest of the group, and you go on to the next hole until you start getting the hang of it. Well, there's certainly, as you know personally, and everyone who plays golf knows that it's a sport full, and it's a full of roller coaster kind of rem- of emotions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you'll hit a great shot one time, and then uh, a few minutes later, you'll be double bogeying a hole or hitting it out of bounds or in the water someplace. But that's part of the fun, and when you hit a good shot, it keeps you coming back. And golf, of course, uh, some as young as 
five or six years old start. Uh, a lot of people start when they're teenagers, but you started a little older. Well, when I was uh, a teenager, it was back in the 60s, and golf wasn't as popular as it is now. With the arrival of Tiger Woods and the advent of golf being introduced in high schools and colleges and offering a lot of sport, uh, golf sports programs, it's become a lot more popular. So the younger players, are be, younger people are being introduced to it much earlier than in my era. So this guide helps new golfers to avoid the pitfalls and some of the more common beginner mistakes. Let's talk about some of those. What are some of the pitfalls? Well, uh, you know, it, in golf, I really maybe phrase that improperly. There's really no pitfalls. The pitfalls I'm referring to are maybe overspending on your first set of golf clubs. I mean, you could spend upwards of uh, $1,500 to $2,000 to buy golf clubs, and you shouldn't really make that investment until, number one, you're sure you like the sport, and number two, until you've work with somebody that knows what kind of clubs would suit you best. Because when you're first starting to play, you buy an off-the-rack set. If you're a certain height or, um, you know, there's different requirements for loft and height, and you have to make sure to uh, pick something that's going to suit those requirements. So you need to be fitted, so to speak. If you really want to play and get into the game and play the best you can, yes. Uh, but uh, off-the-rack sets are, are good, and an, an inst- a pro or somebody in a sports store like a, a Dick Sporting Goods or Golfsmith would offer better information on that than just going cold into a store and trying to get them yourself. Now, when we uh, look at the golf swing, there's, of course, you list seven different steps. Uh, let's just take one of them. Uh, pick one of the... Uh, of uh, that checklist you have, and let's get into the details of, the, of that step. What would you like to talk about? Well, in the seven fundamental steps, I mean, you start naturally with the grip, which is how you set the club in your hands. And each one of those steps is equally as important because if any one isn't executed properly, it could affect the other steps. So, I mean, the grip... Uh, how you hold the clubs, then you set up how you align to your target and the ball and your posture all plays critical roles in your swing mechanics and tempo during the golf swing. And and I, a, big key, a big key when uh, people set up, I, I see they're very tense sometimes. Another important key to the golf swing is to relax to have a relaxed grip and don't grab the club too tightly. And, of course, uh, I guess it's uh, proven that your golf swing has a problem when you hit that dreaded slice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you see a ball taken off well to the right <laughs> or well to the left for left or right-handed golf, <laughs> respectively, you know you did something wrong. And you have uh, you, you have a whole chapter on that uh, to talk about golf swing deficiencies that cause the slice. So that's very helpful. Uh, you you wouldn't think scheduling your first tee time ever would be a, a major step, but uh, obviously when you arrive at a golf course and it's busy, 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 you probably have to know what you're doing. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm offering suggestions from my own experiences. I've taught a couple of people, and I've gone on golf trips with my significant other. And you arrive at the first tee, and when she was first learning to play, she got nervous, and she really didn't want to hit in front of the other people. So the starter was nice enough to recognize that, and he, like, put us off on the uh, back nine where uh, there were no no players around. So we got to relax, and I was able to work with her and get it started, and she was able to enjoy herself instead of being pressured, seeing everybody waiting and watching the, the, person, the new per- golfer swing. Yeah, there's so many different acts, aspects of the sport, uh, you know, when you talk about the golf swing, and then you get into the putt. I mean, putting, that has got to be an art. Yes, it is. I mean, the, more than half of the strokes in the golf game are on the putting green. So if you don't have a good putting technique, it could cost you dearly in the overall score. So it's an important thing to work on when you first start to play. And spending some time on the practice green is well worth the uh, rewards at the end. Well, I'm looking at some of the other chapters here in your book, and and it's very comprehensive. It it goes into the details to help that beginner just to have a uh, better experience, right, when they first go out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you don't know what to expect when you get out on the course, you're not going to enjoy yourself as much as if you know what to expect and you're not holding up other groups and other groups are getting frustrated because they're waiting for you. And when you hit a ball on the green, you're supposed to repair the indentation or the divot that's made there, you know, or not walking another person's line to the hole because it causes a depression and the ball could be could move laterally because of that, believe it or not. Those are some of the rules of etiquette I try. You know, remain quiet, don't talk while other people are hitting. And I have a number of uh, things I address in the book along those lines. And you found that proper golf etiquette isn't found in many other books on golf. No, it isn't. It isn't. I haven't found them unless you're specifically looking for it. And I still haven't seen it to date where etiquette is addressed. So you're... Your advice is coming from all the things that you've encountered and your victories and failures, and uh, basically, uh, you've got, you just got a lot of experiences here. Well, 35 years gives you some of that, Steve. <laughs> some of them you probably you know shed a few tears, and some were just plain funny, I'll bet. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess you have to learn to laugh at yourself on the golf course when you're beginning. Well, you do. Otherwise, you'll be quitting before you give the chance. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. It's a. It's obviously we know as we watch the professionals, and they make it look so easy, and and uh, it's amazing what they can do with that golf ball. And like you said, Tiger Wood has really uh, brought so much interest to the game, and and you know, all his notoriety. Notoriety. You you talk about some. Uh, Different golf, uh, well, are we talking about tournaments? Uh, we're talking about courses here. Uh, yeah, you got my top 10 golf courses. Well, this is actually top 10 in Myrtle Beach. In Myrtle Beach. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. It's uh, a very good place to go for a, a new golf if you want to go on a golf trip. 
It's reasonably priced, and the choice of courses is endless. There's probably over 130 uh, different courses right now, and the prices range from, you know, $40, $30, $40 a round to $200 a round, depending on where you want to play and how much you enjoy the game and want to play the better courses. Or uh, even the $30 or $40 a round courses, that was still beautiful. And then, so of you, course, can't, you can't really go wrong. And then, of course, you have that famous, uh, all those golf courses, uh, but this time without the beach in the southwest. That's when I went to uh, actually Scottsdale. It's the Myrtle Beach of the Southwest. A golf course on every corner. In the desert. <laughs> A golf course on every corner, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then, my goodness, the the thrill of talk about the thrill of victory, right? The hole in one. Yeah, I mean uh, that uh, hole in one has eluded me. I've come so close so many times, and I haven't had the thrill of getting it. I also missed a double eagle twice, once by two inches. And a double eagle, for those who may not know, is uh, three under par. So if you're on a par five, you can't really do it on a par three because that's uh, an eagle is all you can get there because a hole-in-one is an eagle there. You can get a hole-in-one on a par four, which is a e double eagle, and you can get a two on a par five which means it takes normally five strokes to get in the hole in regulation or par, and people have done it in two. Have you had and a chance? I, have you had a chance to see Jack Nicholas play? I haven't had a chance, unfortunately, in person, but I've watched many of his tournaments uh, once I got into golf, and uh, my favorite was the 86 Masters that he was in. But you've everybody wrote him off, and he rallied from, I don't know how many strokes behind, but he ended up winning it over Ballesteros and Greg Norman and a few other top-notch players of the era. And you mentioned in uh, one of your chapters about major golf tournaments. You describe a few. Well, what I did was uh, when I was blogging, I used to like to cover the majors, like the Masters, the U.S. Open, the British Open, and the PGA. And... I wrote a little synopsis of each of the chapters or each of the tournaments for that year. Then I also offer, which I think is very good for the new golfer, golf terminology towards the latter part of the book, which gives them some basic definitions of the different golf terms. Right, your par, last chapter. Yeah, par, eagle, bogey, double bogey. You know, you know that may be. Uh, difficult to comprehend if you don't have if you haven't heard the term before a glossary of golf terms and definitions well give us a closing thought michael and uh then tell us how to get your book go ahead uh i just like to say that uh, golf is a game like no other it's just you against the design elements of the golf course no one to blame when you don't do well, but you also claim, claim all the glory. Uh, you have goals in golf, like breaking 190 or 80 for the first time, and then it's a game that keeps you coming back. You always feel you could have done better, and you can't wait for the opportunity the next time. So I think it's a great game to take up. It's great exercise. Um, you hit a, hit a bucket or two of golf balls at the range, it's a real workout. And you have the opportunity to meet some really nice and interesting people on the golf course, which 
I've enjoyed over the years I've played. My book would be available at uh, iUniverse.com, BarnesandNobles.com, and Amazon.com. Just click in Golf Forever, and it should come up at any of those locations. The title of the book, Golf Forever, of course, four in this case is F-O-R-E, Guide for Beginning Golfers. The author is Michael Dioria. Michael, thanks so much for being on iUniverse Radio. Steve, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed speaking with you, and have a great day. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The O'Leary Enigma, and the author is Bob Purcell, and Bob joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Hi, how are you, and uh, thank you for having me on this morning. Well, great to have you with us, and this is going to be a quite a discussion because it's the first book in a series, and so we're going to set up everything here about this character, Barbara O'Leary, and all her escapades and, and intrigue and mystery and terrorism and all the above. Uh, uh, Bob, tell us uh, a little bit in general, just kind of set the stage for a more detailed discussion. So just give us some uh, a general overview of this first book. Barbara O'Leary is a person who 
is of historical importance in the 21st century. And this book, the first book, is about her early life, from her uh, adoption through to her first uh, success as a naval officer. And it covers the period uh, 1990 through 2019. And what it is is basically trying to tell you, the reader, what makes her tick. And she is, uh, has a personality. She has some strengths. Uh, she's a very intelligent athletic, but she also has some uh, pretty big uh, flaws. Uh, she has uh, some pretty bad sexual hang-ups. So uh, an, ambitious, an ambitious person, she uh, strives for accomplishment, and that is good because she has successes, but it also creates problems. So what I'm trying to do is communicate uh, that this is a person, well, not much different than most of the people you meet. Some strengths, some weaknesses, and uh, he has a life to deal with, uh, successes and failures, and it, uh, he makes some decisions. And one of the decisions is to uh, not pursue a civilian career, either in business or uh, in science, but rather a seat's adventure as a military career. So that's a little bit of the background of the novel. And you're trying to create Barbara. You're trying to uh, have this character be uh, more of a real woman in today's world and not the superwoman or the down, downtrodden woman. Yes, um, you know, in the coming years, uh, and it's already well advanced, uh, women are going to play an increasing role in the nation's defense. When I was a boy, the uh, men were essentially the soldiers and women were back home. But that's not going to be the case uh, as we go into the 21st century. So people are going to, women are going to have to step up to that role. And in this case, my character does. But they aren't, you know, heroic. Naturally, they uh, have to grow into the role. They have to face the challenges. They have to overcome their weaknesses and, uh, and exploit their strengths. So, yes, I, I did not want the um, uh, person who, well, to use the vulgarism, the kick-ass broad, or somebody who was psychologically falling apart. Most women that I know are neither, and, uh, and this is my idea how a 21st century woman would step up to that challenge. Now, your book starts in a very interesting way with a lot of intrigue, mystery, because we, you introduce us to the Igloo Warrant. Tell us a little about that. Well, when I wrote the book, one of the things, uh, I wanted to have a platform. And the difficulty is that when you're writing about the future, you have to introduce uh, ideas and events that haven't happened. So obviously the reader 
doesn't uh, know about that. And so what I chose was to have a government program equal Warren, which uh, inadvertently was able to decode messages from the future. Uh, so there's a time travel element here. And these messages included the biography of Barbara O'Leary, which ostensibly was written late in the 21st century, looking back, as a biography does, to the early parts of the 21st century. And that allowed me a, a vehicle to, uh, in a natural way, explain events that have uh, yet to occur and may seem uh, implausible to us today, but in a future environment uh, may well happen. I guess that Barbara, who you describe as a loner, uh, has a hard time with close relationships, but early on she discovers something about her biological mother that she was murdered? Yes. the Her parents, uh, Frank and Amber O'Leary, that's her adoptive parents, uh, try to make contact with her uh, mother, Giselle. And Giselle puts them off, uh, I think because of embarrassment uh, about her a troubled life. Uh, she was a drug addict. and um, So it turns out that, of course, Barbara is much interested in her biological family, and she knows very little, really, other than the name of her mother. Well, as the story goes on, uh, it turns out that she died uh, intestate without a will, so her father had to investigate, and what they find out is that she uh, worked as a showgirl in Las Vegas, and they go out there uh, to try to discover more about Giselle, and in so doing, they find out that her biological father uh, had paid to have his name kept off the birth certificate because he was a very wealthy uh, Arab, uh, dissolute, but very wealthy. And uh, so this mystery goes through the book that, uh, you know, basically only her parents and Barbara know of this uh, Middle Eastern connection uh, through the uh, biological father. Now, Barbara has her own, uh, must be some kind of inferiority complex about the way she looks. Yes. Um, you know, like many uh, people in the world, uh, she has some very strong points. But one of her weak points is that she attributes her personality, psychological difficulties to uh appearance, and in fact, she's a very skinny, tall person, and she thinks that that's what's standing in her way of uh, relationships, and of course, you know, like many people uh, that we meet, she has uh, wrongheadedly uh, attributed something uh, 
to an external cause when it's really an internal cause. And uh, this creates, uh, for her, difficulty because it impedes her uh, understanding of herself. So she embarks on the road of hormone treatments. Well, where that comes in is as she goes through in life, her uh, mother dies of cancer first. I'm speaking of the uh, the adoptive parents. And then her father, um, an older man, uh, passes away uh, essentially uh, having an accident and then freezing to death. Um, so Barbara inherits a fair amount of money, and uh, she has her first assignment, and uh, it's on an aircraft carrier, and um, some of the uh, pilots are very critical of her appearance. Um, you know, it's natural that people make comments, and she overhears them. Now, her friend, who is kind of the direct opposite of Barbara, uh, tells her that, you know, she hangs her life uh, through a hormone treatment that alters her body. And I guess it uh, is a replacement for, uh, you know, breast enhancement and those things that are common today. Well, Barbara thinks this is the out that will solve her difficulties. So she undertakes the treatment, and uh, it kind of drives the novel because it takes a period of time for these hormones to work. And during that time, she has an opportunity to do a career-enhancing assignment. And the problem is that she has to get back to stop the hormones and the, the assignment runs long, and that forces her to make a decision that uh, ends up uh, driving her into a hostage rescue situation. And that's in Chad. Yes, and basically what happens is uh, she's desperate to get off the ship and go back, get the injection, and stop the process. Well, they when a... The, rest, the hostage taking hers, uh, there's a call from the embassy. We need an expert in communications because we're having difficulty reaching and uh, negotiating with the hostage takers. Barbara volunteers, and that's the beginning of the part where she plays uh, a critical role in rescuing the hostages. And you've, also, you've already mentioned her father, uh, a wealthy Arab, and, of course, she has a terrorist half-brother, and he right. plays, he plays a, a critical role in the story, and, and, and this is uh, not a nice guy. No, he isn't. He, uh, uh, we first hear of him because his group uh, of terrorists under his direction uh, blow up an airliner, uh, and, you know, obviously the, he now becomes a person of significance. It's his group that has 
uh, engineered this hostage-taking uh, by convincing a radical political movement in Chad uh, to do the hostage-taking. And uh, Barbara comes to Chad, and she makes contact with the uh, members of this uh, radical Chad political movement. And in so doing, the plan is this. If he will repair the equipment that is malfunctioning and preventing communication between our embassy and the hostage takers, uh, they will uh, let her go. And uh, so the, uh, the adventure part comes in where she has to go repair the equipment, and then escape in the middle of a civil war, because uh, all these various factions in Chad are now uh, vying for power. And it involves uh, her uh, escaping from men uh, killing people with machetes, and then having uh, a gunfight with uh, a whole group of them, and the uh, through more luck than anything else, escaping back to the embassy. You wrote the O'Leary Igma, so it could be readily adapted to a movie or TV series. Well, yeah, I the the future of media is uh, obviously moving away from the written word toward the um, uh, the visual, and uh, so. I thought of in this book that it was very important that the uh, in that context that the book emphasized uh, the visual and uh, make a platform that would be uh, readily adapted to the uh, to the screen or TV whichever one and uh, you know. That would be a a good point uh, to get the the message across. Do you have in mind how many parts, uh, how many more books in this series? Well, the um, yeah, I think probably uh, I'm working at something on the order of uh, four more books. Uh, the uh, vehicle here will be to talk about the various aspects of uh, life that confront uh, a public figure who's coming up through the military, as many of ours do, and uh, get a chance to look at um, what is going to be required of a successful person in the public life, and then also the kinds of... uh, demands upon that person uh, in the way of uh, meeting challenges that are both internal to the person and caused by the external world. The title of the book, The O'Leary Enigma, and the author is Bob Purcell. Bob, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through iUniverse. But also, it's available on uh, Amazon and on Barnes and Noble. So it's uh, 
basically all you have to do is hop on the uh, the internet. You can get it as a uh, hardcover, a paperback, or in an electronic format. So it's uh, pretty much any way you want it. Bob, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I was glad to talk to you. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Marilyn Monroe, A Case for Murder. And the author is Jay Margolis. And Jay joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jay. Hi, how you doing? I'm going to read what you've written just to set the stage for our discussion. You say this. It is one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. How did Marilyn Monroe die? Although no pills were found in her stomach during the autopsy, it was still documented in the Los Angeles coroner's report that she had swallowed sleeping pills prior to her demise. In fact, 64 sleeping pills. In Marilyn Monroe, A Case for Murder, biographer Jay Margolis presents the most thorough investigation of Marilyn Monroe's death to date and shares how he reached the definitive conclusion that she was murdered. You've spent a lot of time researching this, Jay. Tell us what extent you've gone to. Okay, well, I've uh, you know gone to a confidential source who actually 
um, allowed me access to documents that are sealed off from the public until January 1st, 2039. Um, so I do have, you know, two documents, one of them being a seven-page letter and another uh, being a 90-page document. And uh, these are things that, you know, that the Greenson family has sealed off from the public, and they don't want the public to know the contents of those documents. Now, the Greece, they, for everyone's information, Greeson was Marilyn Monroe's psychiatrist. That is correct. Ralph yes. Greeson, Dr. Ralph Greeson. That is correct. And um, I've interviewed a lot of people. I interviewed uh, the ambulance driver's wife, um, who did confirm to me that James Hall did go to Marilyn's residence that night and you know, that uh, the, uh, the ambulance driver's uh, wife, the ambulance driver was Murray Leibowitz, and then his partner was James Hall. In the 1980s, there was a lot of dispute if James Hall actually went to Marilyn's house because of what he claimed to have seen. Now, James um, Hall, tell us who James Hall was. He was an ambulance attendant who uh, went to Marilyn's house, and he was uh, trying, he found her in the guest cottage. And, and to him, it looked like, you know, something was wrong. Her face started turning blue. So he's trying to get her off that guest cottage bed. She was naked. There was no blanket or sheet under her. But he's trying to revive her, you know, put a resuscitator on her and uh, get her color coming back. And she, it looks like they could safely take her to the hospital. You know, but uh, they're interrupted um, by Dr. Greenson, and I don't know if I want to go too much more into it without giving anything away, but, um, yeah, do you have any other questions about that? Sure. Uh, well, there's a, there's a number of things we can discuss now. Tell us, this is all going on early in the morning of, what, August 5th? Actually, um, this occurs, uh, James Hall arrives um sometime before 11 o'clock, shortly before 11 o'clock p.m. You know, so this isn't the following morning yet. Okay, so on August 4th of right. 1962, all this is going on, and, uh, of course, later that morning she is uh, uh, determined Actually, she had died of, she. well, there was this, she had died of an overdose. Right, that, that is the official story right. of the August that she died, however... My research has uh, shown that she died approximately 11.30 to 11.45 p.m. on August 4th, and that she did not die on August 5th, even though it was widely reported that she did. Now, interesting occurrence also happened early in the morning on August 5th. Tell us about Peter Lawford and his run-in with the police. Well, Peter was drunk, so he was going 80 miles an hour, down Olympic Boulevard, and when he reached Robertson, you know, um, a cop was behind him, so he pulled over, and, I mean, he was going 80 miles an hour, and his headlights were off to boot, and so Lynn Franklin was a Beverly Hills police officer, he's still alive, and he said that uh, Peter was just very nervous, he was drunk, and, you know, and he was coming apart at the scene, according to his account, and... You know, uh, Peter was saying to him, uh, you know, like, where, where's the Beverly Hilton Hotel? How can I get to the Beverly Hilton Hotel? So 
Lynn Franklin said, well, you're going in the wrong direction. You're going east towards downtown Los Angeles. You need to turn around and go uh, north on Robertson Boulevard. So, you know, after he said that, um, you know, Bobby Kennedy turns to Peter and says, I told you, stupid. You know, so, you know, um, at this point, um, Bobby said to Lynn Franklin, he says, can we go now? And uh, Lynn Franklin says, yeah, just don't take it at 75 miles an hour. You know, so he dismisses him, and, you know, uh, Peter turns around and goes in the right direction so that they can take Bob and Kennedy to uh, the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And in the front seat was Dr. Greenson, who didn't say a word during the whole traffic stop. Maryland psychiatrist Dr. Ralph Greeson. Right, he was in the front seat. So this is a, uh, reported by Officer Franklin. And he said this happened at 12.10 a.m., you know, on August 5th which was, you know, uh, literally about approximately 20 to 25 minutes after Marilyn was killed. So we have all these principles found within miles of the death scene. It just uh, brings the causal connection a little bit closer. Now, what did you, you, you interviewed one of her good friends, uh, Jane Russell, before she died. What did uh, uh, Jane Russell tell you? Um, she told me um, that she ran into Bobby Kennedy one time at a waif function. A waif function is like a, you know, a thing for adopted kids. And, you know, like there was this one time when she was there, and this was after, uh, you know, uh, Jack Kennedy had been killed. And Bobby was there too, and he was being very nice to everybody, you know, around um, Jane Russell. However, when Bobby approached Jane, um, his face just dropped, and and so, you know, Jane got this uneasy feeling that, you know, perhaps um, Bobby was not nice to her because uh, he thought that she knew all about what he did, you know, as it related to Marilyn's death. So she got a strong suspicion that, you know, there was something to that, that, that little, like, uh, you know, fact that he dropped his face and was not nice to her at all. Before Peter Lawford died, he talked about Marilyn's affairs with the Kennedys and what she was about to do? Um, yeah, she was about to reveal the um, affairs that she had with the Kennedy brothers, both Kennedy brothers, Jack and Bobby. And, you know, uh, Bobby was there that last day in the afternoon, according to Peter Lawford and other sources as well. Um who actually recorded, you know, the visit to Marilyn's house where Peter and Bobby were trying to get Marilyn to stop this whole idea of threatening a press conference and, you know, just let it led to a heated discussion, at which point, you know, uh, after Marilyn had threatened a press conference, uh, Bobby had responded, according to Marilyn's hairstylist, uh, Bobby had said, if you threaten me, Marilyn, there's more than one way to keep you quiet. And this has been documented in other Marilyn books uh, by Donald Wolf. Uh, he used this uh, same quotation from Marilyn's longtime friend, Sidney Gulliroff, who was her hairstylist. He's now deceased. Um, but he wrote the same thing in his own book, you know, called Crowning Glory. Now, also, uh, Dr. Ralph Greenson, Marilyn psychiatrist, he feared that he would be exposed, too. This is true. Um, 
However, according to um, Peter Lawford, uh, uh, Bobby had set up Greenson. He, he tricked him into killing his patient by lying to him and saying that he was also going to expose the affair with the psychiatrist, which was not something that Marilyn planned on doing. And, you know, so they used Greenson to get rid of Marilyn. It, it, that's pretty much what it is, and nobody's ever mentioned that before, but I put it together that way, and I, I strongly believe that's what happened. You have used information from more than 20 past interviews, and you've also interviewed 22 people. That is correct. Including uh, some of the uh, stars like Dean Martin's ex-wife, Jean Martin, and others. Yes. So as you interviewed these people, their stories all seem to fit together? Well, you know, Jeannie Martin, I told her, I said, look, I said, there are no pills in Marilyn's stomach. And she says, she says to me, quote, uh, don't tell me that. I wouldn't want to know that, you know. And, and she told me she's a, a good friend of the Kennedy family, a, a good friend of Peter Lawford. And I read her, you know, uh, Peter's last interview, which is like a confession pretty much about, because he's, Nobody has ever disputed that Peter was guilty of a Marilyn's death. There's always been different interpretations of that. To say, oh, well, Peter was guilty because he could have gone to Marilyn's house and saved her life, but he didn't. That is the Kennedy interpretation of, you know, Peter's guilt. And, you know, the real guilt there is actually the fact that he's part of her murder, and he never said anything until just before he died. Um, and when I told Jeannie Martin this, I said, you know, look, you know, uh, Mr. C. David Heyman, who's a biographer that Peter um, was interviewed by, has tape recordings of Peter mentioning the conspiracy to murder Marilyn. And she says to me, quote, I knew the Kennedys very well. I knew Peter very well. If anybody took pills, it was Peter. That was her reply to me. And on that, so, uh, on that day before Marilyn died, uh, those who saw her, did they report that she was pretty upbeat? She had, you know, pretty, uh, feeling pretty good? Oh, yes. You know, uh, in fact, um, Gloria Romanoff, who was a friend of Marilyn since 1948, and uh, who was the um, wife of Michael Romanoff, who had that famous Romanoff's restaurant for the, you know, all the stars. You could go there, like Frank Sinatra and Marilyn. Right. Well, she told me that she had planned to, you know, have dinner with Marilyn on August 5th, the evening of August 5th, that they had planned. And, you know, she obviously didn't get to keep those plans. Um, but more importantly, um, George Barris, who was the last uh, person to professionally photograph Marilyn on July 18th, um, he told me that um, on August 3rd, Marilyn had called him, you know, this is one day before she died, and said, hey, look, um, George, you know, come back uh, to California because he's in New York. And she says, I really got to talk to you about something. And so... You know, she says, okay, well, um, George says, okay, well, I'll uh, try to get out there by Monday. You know, I'll try to get to California by Monday. And she says, fine, but, you know, I really got to talk to you. It's important. I have something very important to talk to you about. And so he promises, and, you know, they say um, that they love each other because they're good friends, you know, um, and they say goodbye. Now, what is it that she wanted to talk to him about? It's a press conference. She wanted to talk to him about the fact that she was going to hold a press conference. And the very next day, she said, he found it extremely suspicious that, you know, 
she would allegedly have taken 64 pills when she had planned to see him on on Monday. It doesn't make any sense to him. And he always thought that she was murdered. He, he writes that in his own book, um, which is called uh, Marilyn in her own words. So it was reported that Marilyn swallowed 64 sleeping pills, but not one capsule was found in her stomach at the autopsy. And yet that's the, you know, suicide was the agreed upon uh, reason for her death. Yes. You know, Pat Newcomb, who was her last publicist, has always tried to say that Marilyn took these pills by accident, that she accidentally took too many pills. However, if any medical professional will tell you, especially when there's no pills in the stomach, that um, 64 pills is too many to take by accident, unless you really wanted to end your life, you know, that, I mean, if you really wanted to end your life, then you would take 64 pills. But if you don't plan on taking your life and it's an accident, like Pat Newcomb allegedly said it was all these years, then, you know, you, you don't take that many pills by accident. Even the autopsy surgeon, Thomas Noguchi, says that you can't take that many pills by accident. And stressing the word accident. You know, it's an intentional suicide if you take that many pills, but nobody could ever prove that she wanted to intentionally kill herself on that day. Jay Margolis is the author of his book. He's taken five years of research, and his book title, Marilyn Monroe, A Case for Murder, uh, Give us a closing thought. We have about a minute, Jay. Okay. Um, I, I wrote this book with the intent um, to remove the stigma of suicide that has painted Marilyn Monroe for nearly 50 years. I think it's uh, proper, you know, to put the woman finally to rest, that we finally name her murderers. I won't do it right now, but if you want to know, please read my book. Um, it's a call to case for murder because if you want to believe it, you can believe it. Or if you don't want to believe it, you know, that's just the way it is. People are like that. They, you know, some people want to believe things and some people don't want to believe it. But I think I put enough evidence there where it's going to definitely make you wonder, you know, about what happened. And there's a lot of strong support for what I have to say. And I hope that, you know, people uh, come out, you know, with some like thoughts, you know, they start to think after they read it, you know, and start to wonder and say, okay, well, look at this and look at that, you know, you know and it started to put the, the pieces together because this, this was a puzzle initially. And I initially thought it was an accident, but then I realized that, you, you know, with an empty stomach, you obviously can't take that many pills by accident. So there's no way that this woman intentionally or accidentally killed herself. It's just not medically possible, period. <laughs> so if she didn't kill herself, someone did it for her. And um, I guess we'll conclude with that. Jay, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you can go to Amazon.com, uh, www.amazon.com, type in Mel Monroe, Case of Murder, and you can find it. Thanks, Jay, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh, yeah, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.